0: We are glad that you are here this morning. We, we are studying the book of Genesis here at Revolution Church. We like to study books at, at a time and go verse by verse. And uh, Genesis has been no disappointment, that's for sure. Um, let's see here. Uh, and I'm going to be today's scripture reader, so here we go. Right, read, follow along with me on the screen. Genesis 18, we're going to cover the whole chapter, 33 verses. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, And as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on. Since you have come to your servant, so they said, do, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds of milk, curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the trees while they ate. And they said to him, "Where is Sarah your wife?" And he said, "She is in the tent." The Lord said, "I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son." And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind them, him now Abraham And Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, After I have worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There we go. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place And not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not my Lord be angry He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And would you read verse 33 with me together? And the Lord went his way and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning to understand your word. It is so deep and vast beyond our comprehension. And Father, I pray that you would change our lives. Lord, we, we just sang that like a rushing wind and a mighty storm, that you would have your way. But Lord, when we think about mighty storms, they knock down walls, they tear things apart. And we don't know that we're ready for that, but we need your Holy Spirit to get us ready because radical change is what you call for many times in our lives. So Father, I pray that you would prepare us for, for change, for the things that we maybe are out of our comfort zone, but it is in your footsteps. We asked this for the glory of Jesus, and all God's people said, "Amen, amen." So, who remembers this movie? What's the What's the title of it? Guess who's coming to dinner? One of my favorite actors, one of my mom's favorite actors, was Sydney Poitier, and uh, her name is actually she's not even one of the top Billings. I think her name was Laura Holton or something. Like, anyway. Uh, Houghton, whatever. Anyway, this was a very controversial movie because it addressed the big elephant in the room which was happening in the 60s and that was racism and here this successful young doctor meets this young lady and she brings him home to the family and they wrestle with the whole thing and, and it was interesting it was a big surprise to everybody and it wasn't what everybody was expecting and really that's what's happening in the story today but it's guess who's coming to lunch Abraham's just seated at the tent of his door and it's not just Three men. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and two angels, as you'll see from this passage. And Abraham wasn't expecting this these guests for lunch. And so I'm going to divide this passage up into several categories here. First, we're going to talk about the divine guests that came to Abraham, and the divine promise for Sarah, and the divine judgment for Sodom, and then finally the desperate pleas for the righteous. So that's how we're going to divide it up. Let's start with the divine guests uh, for Abraham. It says, and the Lord appeared. So it tells us right off the bat, one of these three men is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it says he appeared at the Oaks of Mamre. So out in the wilderness, trees were a big deal. This was basically your air conditioning in a desert climate. And so, but it's uh, a few chapters ago, Abram was at the Oaks of Mare, and now he's at the Oaks of Mamre, which is really the Bible just juggling the letters saying the same thing, and it means the place of seeing, the place of seeing. This is where Abraham saw God. This is where God saw Abraham. This is where Abraham got to see the vision of the promised land. This was an area where God is letting himself be seen and his will to be seen. So that's what's tied up in this geography at where Abram's at. Abraham, Abraham now is in a really good place. He is seeing the whole big picture. And more importantly, he's seeing God Himself. You know, many times we pray for guidance, right? We ask for God's direction in life. And you know, one time I was there was I had some friends that were asking for directions because they were visiting from out of town and they wanted to say, you know what? Why don't I just go with you? I'll I'll take you there because I have some errands I could run there too. So I basically gave them a choice. You can have guidance or you can have the guide. Think about that in relation to God. Do we just want his guidance, or do we want him? You see, if we have him with us in life, seated in the pastor's seat, we don't really worry about the directions because he knows where we're going. And so let me challenge you, don't just seek God's blessings, seek the one who gives the blessings. Don't just seek God's guidance, seek the guide himself. And this is what Abraham's experiencing right now. He's in a place where he sees God. Everything else doesn't matter. The promised land, you know, descendants, all that stuff. He's in a place where he's seeing God. And of course, we as New Testament Christians, where is the one place we see God more than anywhere else? It's in his word. So let me tell you something. If you really want to see God? Open up his word. Let the glory of Christ at, through the power of the Holy Spirit fill you as you take in the living manna, the word of God. Be in the word so that you can see God and not only see his will, but see him personally. Um, actually, let me get back. So, and it says that they came to him in the heat of the day. And this is a hyperlink back to Adam and Eve. Here, God said a king and a queen and said, hey, rule with me in the garden. But they abdicated their throne and gave it to Satan. And so, they, but they, God came to them when went in the cool of the day. You know, here it is in the heat of the day, but the only breeze is under this tree. And now God is coming to his king and queen again, Abraham and Sarah, where he's going to start, try to continue the seed again through these two people. And will they fail like Adam and Eve did? We'll see here in a little bit. But that, that's a reference back to the Garden of Eden. You have Adam and Eve, then you had Noah and his wife. And where did Noah and his wife, where did Noah specifically fail? In a garden vineyard, right, when he got drunk. And here we are again in an agricultural setting under a tree. And God's appearing in a certain time of the day. And it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, three men are in front of him. So he's sitting at the tent. He can see a far w- way off. And this type of plane, he could probably see three quarters of a mile. And so usually you see people coming as figures from far away. And then you watch them, you watch them, watch them. And it takes them, you know, maybe 45 minutes to get to where you're at. And, uh, but all of a sudden he's looking and all of a sudden, boom, Fifty yards off they are. Again, they're not right in because the Bible says later he ran. So, But he, they're close enough that we're like, wait, where did they come from? And of course, we know why. The Lord appeared supernaturally in front of them. And of course, the number three, you know, we see that all throughout Genesis, how important the number three is referencing to the Trinity. And he ran. Now, that sounds like, hey, you know, people run all the time. No, not in this day sophisticated, respectful, older gentlemen did not run. You never ran. You know, you let your servants run for you, you let your sons run for you, but older, respectful men did not run. But this was different. This was God, and he he, he loved his Lord, and he's following the Lord. He left the Ur of the Chaldees. He left everything behind to follow this God that he loves. And now that he sees him, he gets up and he runs to him. This is how we know, I think, that, Some people ask, where along the way did Abraham figure out that this wasn't just three travelers? I think when he first saw them, because his response was to run. He did what most people didn't do. Even though hospitality was a thing in that day, where you bent over backwards, you still didn't run. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. When do we see another father running? The prodigal son again doing what's not respectful but he's so in love that now his son has come home but now the roles are reversed it's 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 god coming to him and we also see that it was very customary for people to bow but Moses doesn't just bow he falls on his face he bows before them at the at the earth and so he's face down on the ground because he knows that these are three divine guests and says hey let me get a little water i believe that's for drinking because lo- you would need a large amount of water to wash feet. He says, I don't want to rest. Now, again, throw back to the garden. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested, and of course, the whole Adam and Eve thing happens under a tree, actually a couple of trees. And so we see this hyperlink back to Genesis. And while I bring a morsel of bread, and what's interesting here is, what did the high priest do fast forward into the future? They had the loaves, the cakes of bread, that they brought into the Holy of Holies and they had the sacrifice. And so Abraham and Sarah are gonna play priests here. He said he's gonna prepare bread that you may refresh yourself and nourish yourself. And then after that, you may pass on and continue on your trip, because this is what we do in these days. Bedouins, even to this day, when they encounter travelers through the desert, they bring them in like their family. They could be total strangers and they'll bring them in, they'll feed them, they'll wash their feet, they'll serve them. They'll give them the finest food. They'll give them everything. How many of you have traveled outside the country and experienced that kind of hospitality? And in Ghana, they were bending over backwards serving us with, of course, my favorite was the, um, the fruit. What's the fruit, Patrick? The mangoes. Oh, my gosh. Our mangoes are this big. Their mangoes were this big. Every meal, mangoes, you know. And these people were super generous. And so he says, since you've come to your servant, Abraham. Now, remember, Don't just picture Abraham and Sarah in a tent just out in the middle of nowhere, in a pup tent, okay? This is an extravagant tent. He's got servants. Remember a couple chapters ago, he had his own private army of how many men? 318, okay? That was just his army, not to count all the servants. So he's got a, he's basically a king of a clan here. So, but he says, I'm your servant, okay? This is a man who had servants, who had all kinds of servants who did whatever he wanted And yet he's seeing himself as a humble servant to God. And of course, that's what we need to do, amen? We need to see ourselves as servants. And you think, well, how do I serve God? There's there's a lot of different ways you you could do it. Um, It says, but we'll look at that here in a second. It says, Abraham went. So it didn't say Abraham sent. It says Abraham went. He personally went quickly into the tent. And notice that word quickly, you're going to see it. Three times. Number three is big, I told you, right? He goes into Sarah and says, Quick, three seahs or measures of flour. Now, a, a siya was enough to break, bake a big loaf of bread for the whole family to eat. But how many does he want? Three. He wants the Lord Jesus and both of the angels to each have their own loaf of bread big enough for a family. He's going way abundantly above all that they're even asking. He, and he's asking Sarah, don't get a servant to do it. I need you to do it. I need you to make the cakes, okay? And then it says, um, and then Jesus, talking about in a, in a parable Jesus told him in the future, in chapter 13 of Matthew, he says, he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. What's leaven? What would we call leaven today? Yeast, right? That a woman took and she hid, or she kneaded into three measures of flour. This is the exact same reference here back here. So I think there's a parallel here. I don't know exactly what all it is, but Abraham and Sarah are serving God by faith, and in this passage right here, leaven is the faith, and then when the faith goes out into the world, it spreads everywhere. Sometimes we say leaven's a type of sin in the Bible. Most of the time, but not always. In this case, leaven is a type of faith and how the kingdom of heaven, our faith spreads into the world. And of course, here you have the seed of Abraham by faith spreading into the world to bless all nations. And that's the parallel Jesus makes with the two two references to three measures or three seah. So again, Abraham's running and he goes himself personally to the herd and he took a calf and he didn't just take any old calf, he could have taken any animal. He took the best of the best. He picked one that was young and tender and good. He wanted to give his very best to the Lord and he gave it to a young man. He said, okay, I need you to prepare it. How? Quickly. Third time. And again, you see the three loaves, the three references to quickly, and many other references to three in this passage where he's honoring God in his situation. So, in Proverbs three nine, Solomon picks up on this whole concept of what Abraham is doing. And he says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Abraham picked the very best calf he had. This calf, if you ever been to the use livestock and rodeo, the prize calf could bring lots and lots of money. Just ask Mattress Mac, right? He'll, he'll pay $40 million for one of those, you know. And maybe Abraham didn't have a Mattress Mac on the scene, but he definitely had something that was worth, this is probably the most valuable piece of livestock he had, that part of his wealth, and he gave it to God. And we honor God with our wealth, with the first fruits of all our produce. And God says, I'm going to bless you for that. If you do that, I'll bless you. Now, this is not a name and a claim and thing like that. It's just a general principle that generous people, the Lord takes care of. And then it says, and he took curds and milk. Now, curds, if you read in Judges chapter 19, it is the food of nobility. I don't know exactly. What curds taste like. I don't know that I want to find out. (laughs) I know in biblical times, though, it was something that was a delicacy. And the average person would have been given water, but the, the most honored guest would be given milk. So here they're giving the very best, and again, with the best choice of meat, the calf, not chicken, as much as I love chicken. They were giving them calf, all right? And he set it before them. And then Abraham did what every butler and maid and servant do he stood by. He stood by them. I remember when I was a young pastor, one of the first weddings I did, the wedding literally lasted 15 minutes. They just wanted to be married in their living room. So a friend of mine who helped in my youth ministry said, hey, my, Sarah, my sister is flying into town. Her and f- her fiance want to get married. Just a small thing it will be just us in our living room, and we want to know if you would do it. I'm like, sure. So I went out there, and I said, don't even wear a tie. So I went out there, and I just wore a dress sir- shirt and some, some uh, slacks and... Uh, and I did this wedding that lasted just like that. And the dad, who was from Florida, was very wealthy. And he would flown in from Florida on his private jet and said, I want to take you all out to dinner. And he took it to a place called the Glass Menagerie in the Woodlands. Okay? And we're sitting in this dining area, and we're like the only ones in that area. And there's Bruno, Donna, and me, the couple, and their dad. So I guess there's six of us there, and I think there was a niece that showed up. There's seven of us around this table and we've got like five people standing there like this with claws over their arm. And as soon as our water got like a half an inch low, and they're like this. And then it's the time to serve the dessert, and they're like placing the napkin over our lap, and they're sliding the plate in front of us and giving us a special fork for our dessert. Just really up each, you know, place that we wouldn't normally go to, right? And for that wedding, I was just a young youth pastor, and that guy gave me $250 for doing the wedding that dad did. And he paid for the dinner for everybody. But I just was so impressed with the people standing around just like five feet away. You know, I'm like, do you want some? Or, you know, I'm just kind of feel weird. Somebody standing over your shoulder while you're eating. But just them waiting on them. And this is what Abraham's doing. Again, the guy who's used to having all the servants wait on him, he's playing the role of the servant. And that's what the presence of God should do to every single one of us. So we're like, hey, where's the toilet brush? What? Anybody need a vacuum? Can I take out the trash? We're here to serve. And the way that we serve the Lord is, the, is we serve his body. This is the body of Christ. When you serve one another, you are serving the Lord. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each of you have received the gift, and all of you have, you've been given spiritual gifts, right? You should use your spiritual gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or manifold grace. God has blessed you. He says to his disciples, freely you've received, freely give. Every one of us have been saved by grace through faith. We we owe it to one another to serve the body of Christ and use our gifts not to draw attention to ourselves, but to serve each other. And it says, and all that happened where? Under the tree. The last time God came under a tree at a certain time of the day when the breeze was blowing, it was to, to judge Adam and Eve And to pronounce curses on the earth and upon them and upon the serpent. But this time, he's bringing the blessing, not the curse. He's promising how he's going to bless them. And so, and what he goes on to say here, in Hebrews chapter 13, there's a commentary. See, when I prepare my sermons, I read lots of commentaries and see what other preachers have to say about a passage. But it's great when you have the Bible to be the commentary on the Bible. The writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is, uh, gives a great commentary On this, and he says, Do not neglect to show hospitality. Hospitality is one of the most important attributes of Christianity. You realize in in the early century, Christians spread the gospel around the world through hospitality. We get the word hospital from that because the very first hospitals were invented by Christians. In the Roman Empire, if someone got sick and they were critical or beyond what, what's the word i'm trying. what is someone when it's incurable It's terminal when their disease became terminal a lot of times they were just shunned they were just thrown out into a ditch to die and yet the christians would go along and pick up these babies that were thrown in the ditches the, the lepers and all the other people that were sick and they'd bring them into their homes and they started they, they eventually would turn their home over and say you know what i'm gonna build another home let's make this a place of hospitality or a hospital and there was Christians who were loving that. And even Nero said that the Christians care for our poor better than we do. So let that always be part of our lifestyle. Let that always be part of the DNA a Revolution Church, that we care for the sick, the poor. And not instead of the gospel, but as a platform to share the gospel. Hospitality is so important. Bringing people into your home. We live in a country where... We drive up, we push the button, the garage door opens, we pull in, the garage door goes down, we don't have to see our neighbors, they don't have to see us, and we have people two doors down, we have no idea what their first name is. And that's not what Christianity is about. We need to, we should know our neighbors more than anybody. We should have people into our homes, whether it's for the Super Bowl party, or just for a bowl of chili, or take them out to somewhere for coffee, whatever. Hospitality ought to be part of who we are. And he says, here's the reason why for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I don't, some people say this refers to Abraham, but I don't think it does. I think Abraham was fully aware of who he was entertaining. He's to other t- referring to other times in the Bible when this happens. It's so interesting because just recently, one of my, best, my best friend growing up, Andy Tolerowski, we've been friends since we were like in diapers, and I actually had the privilege when I was 15 and he was 14 to lead him to Christ on my front porch, and we've stayed in touch ever since. And what's interesting is, Andy grew up in a, uh, and I'm, finding, I'm just finding the text here. Andy grew up in a home where, just like me, we were the same religion, that we were told, just be good and you'll go to heaven. But I, I shared the gospel with Andy, and um, hold on. And I apologize, I'm taking forever to do this here. And uh, anyway, and uh, as soon as he turned 18, he went to a Bible believing church. And uh, he didn't want to dishonor his parents because they were very devout to that religion. But as soon as he turned 18, he went to a Bible-believing church. And today, he's being trained as an elder at a church in Philadelphia. So anyway, he sent me a text recently. He said, hey, how are you? He said, I hope all is good. Just thought I'd share this with you. I have been in a little bit of a funk lately. I've been praying on it. And when I I went to get a cup of coffee this morning at the Wawa. Anybody know what Wawa is? It's a horrible name for a, a convenience store. It's like 7-Eleven, but they call him Wawa. It's just the worst name ever. Sorry. Anyway, he said, I went at the Wawa. I was met by this disabled man outside who asked me for some money for a cup of coffee. I told him I would get it for him. I picked up a few other items for him and stood outside and talked and ate. He told me he was a recovering addict and he had kicked drugs and that he already knew the Lord. When we were done, I asked if I could pray for him. When I asked him his name, he told me his name was Gabriel. I'm not saying he was an angel. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But he said, and then Andy goes on to say, sometimes God is subtle, and sometimes he gives you a smack in the head. And a- Andy got out of that funk just by serving somebody else. You never know that the, when the person you help, what they may be. I do believe that sometimes God crosses people on our path that are not people, but they're angels in disguise. And that's what this verse is talking about, you know, ministering to angels unaware, like we don't even know it. So let's go to the second part of this story. There is a divine promise for Sarah. As we learned last week, the Bible exalts women more than any religion in the world. People knock the Bible like, wait a minute, you're, you're mixing up what the Bible reports or describes from what the Bible prescribes. Women are exalted. Last week we saw that God entered into a covenant with Sarah as well and changed her name just like he did Abraham's name. And so um, there's a chiasm here and for those of you who knew, chiasm is a structure, a poetical structure, where it's like building a sandwich. you get bread, bread, mayonnaise, mayonnaise, lettuce, lettuce, and then you build towards the most important part of the sandwich, which is the meat. And that's what, there's a chiasm here about Sarah. He starts off in verse 9, saying, where is Sarah? And let me turn this way. And then he ends with the, the, the chiasm with Sarah denying that she laughed. And then he's reiterates the promise that this time next year Sarah will have a son and on the way out of the story he says the exact same thing this time next year appointed Sarah will have a son and then it's about Sarah and Abraham were old and that the way of women had ceased to be with her and then on the other side of the middle of the chiasm again Sarah's saying I'm old and and God's asking is there anything too hard for the Lord but the most important part is in the middle Sarah laughed herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And that's the most important part of what we're about to study right here. So this, the whole thought is connected with the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer to that question is what? No, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. So they're outside eating and this is not like Sarah's being a snob, okay? Um... It was customary for the women to stay inside the tent and the men to eat outside. So she's not doing anything unusual here. But it is interesting that God goes into the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam and Eve are hiding behind their attempt at clothing. And so, he, and, and so here, in a way, Sarah is hidden, not by choice but by culture. And so, but you see the parallels there. And they said, well, she's in the tent, you know, thinking, well, that, that's, what, that's what's normal. That's where women are usually are. And the Lord says, "You know what? I want you to know." And I now did. did Jesus not know where Sarah was? No, of course he knew. Did when God went up to the garden and asked Adam, "Where are you?" Did God not know? No, he wanted them to get their attention. So here he's like, "Sarah, uh, where, where's Sarah?" Okay, I want you to hear this, Sarah, because I'm fixing to talk about you because I know you're eavesdropping. Okay, and so that's how I see this picture. He says, "He said, I will surely." Okay. And and this is the second time he's saying this. I promise you, I know you guys have been waiting for a long time for me to fulfill the promise of that blessed son. I'm just letting you know that about this time next year, and the word time here means season. So a little bit of time has passed since the last time he said this, so he's not moving the date. He's still within the same season. But it is far enough in advance that it's not within the nine months of pregnancy. So it's not like, oh, I know you're pregnant, so this time next year. No, before she conceived he's making this prediction and that sarah your wife see how god's being really redundant here like Abraham's like well of course sarah's my wife yeah but you remember how you messed with hagar trying to mess up the whole plan no my plan's going to work sarah your wife will have a son we are still on plan a we're not replicating that we're not descending to plan b it says, and Sarah was listening. Sarah's eavesdropping. She was, she's listening inside the tent and the door, which is right behind them, very close as they're eating the shade of the tent and the tree. And Abraham, now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. You ever read the Bible and say, well, why is it repeating itself? What is that? Old and advanced in years. Wait a minute. Remember when people were this age just before the flood and they were not advanced in years. They were still kicking out babies like, no problem, okay? They're four or 500 years old, still having kids. So the Bible's saying not only are they old numerically, but physiologically they're old. Where someone, again, the same age, just before the flood, they would have no problem having kids. So that's why the, every word matters. And the way of women, the ability to conceive, and in other words, she's post-menopausal here, that said, cease with Sarah. So now, this will take a miracle for a child to be conceived. God waited till then so that humans could not take any credit for what was about to happen. And Sarah laughed. How? To herself. Okay? I don't think this is audible. Okay? I think this is, at the most, and I think inside the tent, you know, 15 feet away or 20 feet away, I don't think it's heard. I think, God knew she laughed because he's God. I don't think she laughed out loud. I think that's why the Bible goes to that extra step to say she laughed to herself. And inside of herself, she's saying, not out loud, I am worn out. In other words, I'm past being able to give childbirth and my Lord's old. This is before any type of inventions or prescriptions, okay? And shall I have pleasure? It's interesting where she goes. Man, you thought it was awkward last year, last week talking about circumcision. This is awkward here. But she's not even thinking about Am I too old to bear children? She's thinking, am I too old for Abraham and I to have fun? And that's where she's going with it. And it's great that she thinks of it that way. And I could spend a lot more time on that. But I won't. I'll spare Patrick, who's already turning red over here. Okay. So here's the question. Why is she like, what? Surprised about all these details. Is this news to her? I think, this is my theory, if you just read all the stories we've read so far in Genesis, Abraham told Sarah, God's going to give me a son. But didn't say anything about her. And that's why Sarah's like, "Okay, well, I'm too old. Here's Hagar." And now it's like, "Wait a minute. I'm I'm going to have a son?" She's acting like this is news. Did Abraham not tell her all the details of the plan? Evidently not. Have you ever had that awkward conversation where you're like, you don't want to tell your spouse, you don't want to tell your spouse, you keep putting off and keep putting off to have this conversation? And I think that's where Abraham was. He's like, God's going to give me a son. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. And of course, he may have told her at a time in her 40s when that was possible, but then 50s, 60s, and then now in at 86, she's like, I'm too old, here's Hagar. And then 13 years later, She's, oh, I'm sorry, I I did the math on Abraham. So she's 76, okay, 13 years later, now she's 89, and she's saying, I'm too old, and now she's getting news that it's actually going to be her, and I think that's why she's laughing through this whole situation and laughing to herself. So the Lord now asks three questions. Why did Sarah laugh? Did you not tell her, Abraham? Are you not communicating as a couple here, (laughs) you know? And does, does Sarah doubt that I am God, that I'm able to pull this off? The question is not just, you shouldn't be laughing, it's what is, what's the motivation behind the laughter? Question number two, it's implied because the grammar connects it here. Why did Sarah say, shall I indeed bear child now I'm old? So not only is she like, skeptical about it, she's doubting that this. she's only looking at it in human terms. What's the biggest challenge you have right now? Finances, marriage, wayward child, job security, you, you name it, right? We could, you know, with, with 80 people in here, there are probably 80 different problems. You name your problem. And then you wonder how is God going to fix this? And you wonder, can he fix this? You're looking at it on a human level. You're looking you're denying the supernatural, you're being a practical atheist and thinking only in natural terms. Well, in order for this to happen, I need this much money. And No, 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 God is on the throne. God can solve your problem any way he wants to. He can do it, in, as Pastor Stan will say, in a supernatural way. God wants to do it in a supernatural way because when he does it in a supernatural way, guess who gets all the credit? He does. And so God has put Abraham and Sarah in a situation where he's going to get all the credit. He asked this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? This is amazing here. The word hard is the same word in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, talking about the Lord is a wonderful counselor, the mighty God. In other words, is anything too wonderful for God to do? Anything that's like, wonderful means that you wonder, how did that happen? And the only explanation is God did it. So the word hard doesn't just mean difficult, it means in a supernatural way where you wonder wow how did that happen it must be it must be god in luke chapter 1 verse 36 we got another old lady who supernaturally has kids behold your relative he's talking to mary your relative elizabeth is in her old age has also conceived two miracles you've never been with a man you're a teenager who's never had intercourse and you're pregnant guess what your old cousin Elizabeth, who is way post, post-menopausal, she's pregnant too. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I could do this all day long if you want me to. We could just have women. But again, God doesn't do it all day long. He does miracles when he chooses, not on our timetable. So they wouldn't be miracles if they were daily occurrences, but God shows you, he bookends this miracles here, and it says, and she will have a son. She's, she's six months now. So this isn't just like, She got pregnant for a little while and had a miscarriage. She's well on her way. She's six months ahead of you. Because, read verse 37 with me, everybody. For nothing will be impossible with God. Again, what's your biggest challenge right now? Have you just said, oh, I'm just going to settle for this? Or do you really believe that nothing is impossible for your God? So, what impossible thing are you trusting God for? What impossible thing are you trusting God for right now? What would you like to see God to come through on? You can, I, would continue, I would urge you to continue to pray and ask God for his will to be done. And God can do this for his glory. So back to our passage here in verse 14. He says, anything too hard for the Lord? And then he says, at the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. How many times has he said this now? Three times. He keeps repeating it because God keeps his promises. Even when we think, man, it's been forever. And man, Abraham at 99, I bet it feels like forever. I bet it feels like impossible. I bet he thinks, I mean, how many years have people been laughing at him? Your name is what? Abraham, exalted father of many. <laughs> Where's your kids? Oh, well, you got you know, uh, Ishmael over here of you, with a handmaid. but where are your kids? Is God not coming through your promise? I, it almost parallels Noah, working on the ark for 120 years. People laughing at him, saying, man, where's your God? I thought he promised rain and a flood. Whatever. And God puts us in situations like that where we have to wait. And let me just tell you, God is seldom early, but he's never late. In Galatians 4, we see the same reference to Mary. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, the appointed time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, not of a man and a woman, just a woman, the virgin birth, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So this is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. But when she's confronted about the laughter, she denies it. Saying, I I did not laugh. And this goes back to, remember when Abraham went before Pharaoh? And Pharaoh's thinking Abraham's wife is Sarah's hot. And he's wanting to take her for his own wife. And he's like, "Um, she's my sister. And remember that was actually a half truth? Because they had the same father but different mothers? And I think this is a half-truth. She's like, well, I didn't laugh out loud. And so it's, again, we see these half-truths. And, and of course, we, we all know that a half-truth is a whole lie. So don't give in to those things right there. But her motivation for this was she was afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of God's reaction to her? Maybe. And, of course, we shouldn't be in, we should fear the Lord, Bible says that over and over again, but not this type of fear, where we're afraid for him to see our heart. Let me, let me challenge you, and I challenge myself, because this is one of weak areas of my life, in our prayers to just get real with God. Say, God, I, I really don't see this situation getting better, and I really don't know how you're going to pull it off. I know that you can up here, but down here, I'm having my doubts. And, 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 I, and sometimes I look at this situation and I laugh, like Sarah, you know. Just being open, transparent, and honest with God is a good thing. He's a big man. He can take it. H- have you read David's Psalms? I mean, the bipolar king who's just like up one minute, down the next, and like this and complaining, and where are you, God? Why have you forsaken us? Why this? Oh, and why Oh, you're amazing, God, whatever. And he's just like praising God one minute, complaining to God the next. And God's like, bring it. In fact, give me 150 of those. The biggest book in the Bible, I'll take all 150 of these wacko psalms where you're just like in the desert one minute and you're on the the throne the next. You know, God can take our honesty. He wants that. He desires that in every single one of us. So we know from the New Testament that Sarah did come around to believe. So if you left off this story here, you think, oh man, Sarah, she's a loser. What's going on here? But our commentary, back to our commentary in Hebrews 11. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive. Do you see this? The change in her body came about because she had faith in what God said. And God biologically changed and gave her the power to conceive. He didn't just stick a baby in her like Mary. Okay, He gave her the power to conceive, even when she was way past the age. And here's how she did it. She considered God faithful. Isn't this ironic? God wants you to be faithful, but what's the basis of your faith? knowing that he's faithful. You see, it all begins and it all ends with God. He's the one who's faithful to us. having trouble seeing here. Okay, so our faith in God comes from believing how faithful he is to us. So the next time you're struggling, the next time you're doubting, your faith is weak, remember how faithful God is, and he will pull you through. Just like the ability to love comes from God and flows out from you to others, the ability to even have faith comes from God and flows in you out towards others and even back towards God himself. So now the men, and this I believe this is referring to the other two, they started walking on and they looked down towards Sodom. Sodom from the Oaks of Mamre was lower in elevation. In fact, it's near the Dead Sea, the lowest place on planet Earth. Okay? It is, so it's lower geographically. It's south. So it's lower in elevation, it's lower as far as north reference to south. But the Bible uses geography as a play on words. It's lower in every sense of the word. You know, it's like they wrote this song, I've Got Friends in Low Places. That, that, that's how low this song is. It was a nasty country music song, which is the lowest form of music. Sorry, I apologize. No, I don't. Not really. Anyway, so it, he's saying it's a lower reference. Morally, they're lower. And, and, he, and, and Abraham says, well, hey, well, let me walk you out, which was common to walk you know, maybe even a half mile. Just like when you have relatives visiting from out of town, you will even take them all the way to the airport and walk all the way down to the terminal and then say goodbye. And this is what Abraham's doing. I want to, let me set you on your way. In fact, let me take you to, to the fastest way down there. And then and then the Lord, as they're walking, says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And it's a, again a rhetorical question. God's not contemplating whether he should tell him or not. So it's like when you have the kids in the car and say, hey, should we tell them where we're going? Oh, yes, Mom, Dad, where are we going? Where are we going? You ask the rhetorical question because you plan to tell them. And that's what God's doing here. And he says, you know, should I tell him, seeing that Abraham, I mean, he's going to be a big deal here pretty soon. I'm going to make him a great nation. And whole earth is going to be blessed because of him. Do you think we should include him in this plan as he's talking to the angels? Kind of comical here. He said, for I have chosen him, you know, and I have commanded his children and his household after him. So he's saying this is not just about Abraham. This is about the future. This is about... Ishmael, Isaac, grandchildren, great grandchildren. But it's interesting, he says, command his children and his household after him. When you think about your children, do you think about commanding them? Seems kind of strong, but I think that's what the Bible is calling for. Ephesians 6 says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The positive and the negative, both sides. Sometimes parents want to be all positive, positive. Hey, we can be best buds. Just listen to me and everything will be great. And some parents are all negative and discipline, 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 and no relationship. There's a balance here. It's not one extreme or the other. It's the two of them working together and that you are responsible for commanding your children and teaching them and discipline them when they don't obey. And it's interesting, he says, here's what I want you to teach your children, to keep the way of the Lord, to keep the way of the Lord. And how do you do that? By doing righteousness and justice. You live in a way that's right, and you're fair to others in the way that you live. You not only do what's in your best interest, you do what's in the best interest of others. Righteousness and justice are the hallmarks of Christian living. It says, And the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. God says, You know, the complaints... That's what outcry is. The complaints I'm getting about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's, it's like w- way up high. And, and I'm hearing that the sin that they're committing is just horrible. And so the question is, who or what is crying out against the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, David Guzik in his Enduring Word Commentary divides it into four categories, which is pretty good here. First of all, God and his holy justice are crying out against Sodom and Gomorrah. God is grieved. God refers to our prayers as rising up to him. He also refers to the wickedness of our sin rising up to him. And so our sin, our prayers are often referred to as incense that smell good rising to the throne of God. And our sin is described as a stench in his nostrils, like as a putrid smell rising up. And God's like, Sodom and Gomorrah stinks so bad it's reaching the, the throne of heaven. And that's, that's a metaphor for God's holiness and his justice. But also, even these onlooking angelic beings are crying out and saying, God, look, look how horrible these people are to one another. And then think of the multitudes, the tens, the thousands of victims. You know what your welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah was? Hey, you're new to town? We're going to rape you. That's what we're going to learn about next week. That was their welcome. That's how horrible of a wicked city that it was. Um, Creation itself, as Romans chapter 1 says, is groaning and affected by the unnatural transgression. So there's four outcries against Sodom and Gomorrah. So God says, I will go down to see. The last time God said this was where? The Tower of Babel. Oh, they're building this tower that's supposed to rise up to heaven. God so let me come down and look at your little itty bitty tower. Okay, and here he's like, hey, I want to go down personally, and he's using what's called an anthropomorphism. Here's divine God who's Limitless in time and space, putting himself in human limitations, saying, "Hey, I'm going to take a walk down there to Sodom and Gomorrah." So, and this is a future reference to when Jesus will come down on His second coming and He will judge the whole earth. So we see that foreshadow there as well. Second Timothy refers to this in chapter four. He says, "I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom." And when Jesus comes the second time and he goes down, it won't be just for Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be for the whole earth. So the third, we've seen the divine guest at Abraham, Jesus and two angels. We see the divine promise that this time next year she will conceive. Then we see the divine judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And now this causes Abraham to have a desperate plea for the righteous. A desperate plea for the righteous. So the men turned from there, and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So this is where I see the two angels walking forward. And Abraham like walking ahead and going, hey, but God, God, hold on for a second. And he wants to have a conversation as those guys are still walking down towards Sodom. And he wants to pray. He wants to plead. He says, will you? I mean, I can understand other people. We just had a war around here. Remember, five, remember the five kings taking on the four kings and the whole battle? And Lot got caught up in the mix. I can understand people wanting to destroy Sodom. Nobody likes Sodom, you know. They're like, I won't name a town. Uh, I was going to throw out a Texas here. Anyway, it's like these other places that nobody likes. I can understand, but God, you, you're going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Look at that language there, sweep away. What does that sound like? The flood. God had just destroyed the whole earth and swept everybody away with these tidal waves all over the planet earth. He said, are you, and he's like, is this another flood? I thought you promised not to do that. He's like, no, not a flood. It'd be fire and brimstone, but it's not a flood. And so will you, will you do that? What if there's righteous people there? And so he starts this bargaining thing. What, God, what if there's 50 people there? And, and, and he said, far be it from you, he understands God's character, that God is loving. God is patient. God is just. Now think about that. How does Abraham know that? Didn't Abraham just mess up a few times here recently? Messed up with Hagar. You know what? If, if I had been God and they had done the whole Hagar thing, I'd say, deal's off, boom. You guys blew it. I'm going to find me another Abraham. But God says, no, I'm loving, I'm patient, I'm kind. And you want to lie about your, your wife in Egypt and put you both in harm's way? But guess what? I'm loving, I'm patient, and kind. Abraham knows firsthand how patient God is. And that caused him, think about this, to be patient with the wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a lot. That, he's learned a lot. Here's the thing: you got people getting on your nerves. Anybody have that? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Don't look at anybody right now. That's a good time. Not a good time. You got a neighbor who's a jerk. You got an, um, someone you work with that's a jerk, and you got a relative. Or you can say you're like check, check, check. Okay. How much patience are you showing towards them? Are they as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah? Probably not. But think about Abraham. The reason he can be patient with others is because he understands and appreciates God's patience with him. Let that be your motivation for being patient with others. So he begins to plead. And uh, he says, with the righteous, so the, the righteous fair they turn out with the same outcome as the, as the wicked. And of course, we know from Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there's none righteous, no, not one. So Abraham's not seeing this from God's perspective. He said, far be it from you. How many times has he referenced God? You, three times, okay? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He said, God, you're the perfect judge. Other judges are unfair. They take bribes. They do things. They, they make personal favors. But you're the most fair judge in the universe. Won't you do what's fair? <clears throat> so, you know, God says, you know, if it's, it's 50, I'll spare the place. So it's interesting, Abraham can't take yes for an answer. God says, yes, I'll spare it. So he keeps negotiating, keeps negotiating. And then, get this to click here. Abraham says, behold, I, I realize what I'm asking right now. I'm negotiating with the God of the universe. I realize that's not a great place to be in, and I have no room for negotiation. And I, I am just dust and ashes. Again, a hyperlink back to Genesis. God made Adam and Eve of the, or Adam out of the dust of the earth. He said, I know I just came from the same place Adam did. I'm just dust, and I'm going to return to ashes. So, and then watch what, Na- watch what Abraham does. Really clever negotiation here. He says, so what if, I, you said you won't, you will spare it for 50, but what if we come up five short? Will you destroy the whole city because of five? Wait a minute. He never said, he's not destroying the whole city because of five people, he's destroying the whole city because the whole city's wicked. But he's shifted, he's, he's done the, the eggshell game there, uh, and he's moved the target. And he says, what about 40? And keep moving on. He says, oh, you know, Lord, don't let me be angry. I mean, he realizes that he's no one positioned to negotiate and he could take God off. But what about 30? And what about 20? And then what about 10? And what's interesting is God says, hey, I won't destroy for 10. And as Tim Keller says, he's got God on the ropes. God is rolling over and giving him everything. He could have went all the way down to one. But what does Abraham do? He goes his way, and God goes his. He gives up and realizes, you know what? I'm down to 10. That leaves Lot, Mrs. Lot, daughter, daughter, and those stupid son-in-laws that are engaged. That's six. I'm not even going to get 10, because Lot's a loser. And we'll see in a few weeks his wife's a loser. And we'll see that his daughters are really losers. And his son-in-laws don't even leave the city. He's like, never mind, God. That's what I think happened here. He, he, he's already done, worked them down to 10, and he just he quits. Because he knows, you know what? There's not even 10 there. There's, and I, I, that, maybe I'm reading too much into it. But let's look real quickly how Abraham prayed in this situation. He prayed theologically, responsibly, extremely, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go back here, and, and compassionately. Let's start with theologically. He prayed because he understood who God was. I think the reason I... And we don't pray as much as we should is because we fully don't appreciate who God is. We don't understand. There's two extremes here. Yes, he's an almighty, all-powerful God who can do anything. And this almighty, all-powerful God who can do anything is your dad. Think about your kids. You're like, please go away and stop asking me. You know, they ask and ask and ask. Only if we had the determination of our kids to ask and ask and ask. Because what does he say? He says that that he is a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children. He wants us to ask. He enjoys those conversations when we ask. So he's a just judge. He's fair. And then he's our father who's in heaven. And so we want to glorify his name. He prayed responsibly. How did Abraham start this, this prayer? Well, it started with God talking to him first. And let me tell you something. We need to pray in response. When God's moving, we need to be praying. And watch for God to move so we can pray in response to what he's moving. And then he prayed extremely, extremely in many ways. He prayed, it was, he was extremely humble. I'm just dust. Don't get mad, God. I, I realize I have no business talking to the God of the universe. But yet at the same time, he's bold. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. It's just like, okay, back off, Abraham. My I man, you're quite the negotiator here. He's humble and bold at the same time. And then you, you see that, He's very familiar, though. He's talking like he's talking to his best friend because Abraham's one of the few people in the Bible is called the friend of God. That balance between God of the universe, don't kill me, and my best friend. It's just amazing how Abraham prays here. And he's very submissive. Lord, whatever you want. And then he prays compassionately. This prayer is not for him. It is for one of the most vile cities that's ever been on the face of the planet. And yet he's feeling compassion towards them. That shows Abram's being pretty godly. Because God, God looked down upon a very vile, wicked planet. And says, Jesus, go die for them. So Abraham has these three guests at his tent. He realizes who they are. And of course, in the Garden of Eden, God had his presence, two angels on either side, right? And here, here's Jesus with two angels on his side. And in the temple, where the mercy, on the throne of God in heaven, it says there's cherubim on either side. And the Ark of the Covenant, where Jesus' blood would be placed, what is there on either side? There's angels on either side. And at the empty tomb, where Jesus' glorified resurrection happened, where, how many angels are there? There's two angels. And what's interesting, let's go back to Abraham, what he said, he said, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death, With the wicked. You see where this is going? Jesus Christ, instead of having two angels on the other side, he has wicked thieves on his side. And God did put the righteous to death with the wicked. Here we have the gospel again in Genesis 18. Do you realize what Christ has done for you? What he's done for me? How, like Abraham, we've all failed so many times. And yet, the judge of all the universe would be unfair to his own son and let him take our punishment for our punishment upon him. Jesus came to Abraham with two options. The blessing of being his child by faith. Sarah will have a son and all that goes with it. And then he also said, but there's judgment of sin upon Sodom and Gomorrah for those who won't repent. You, You have the same option this morning. Jesus comes to you With an option, you could be a child of mine. I could bless the whole world through you. Or, if you don't repent like Sodom and Gomorrah, that's what Jesus told the Pharisees, the most religious people of his day, lest you likewise repent, you'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We had something really bad happen in our country recently, in Memphis, Tennessee. Five police officers uh, in the Scorpion Division, a special unit of police to, to deal with crime, pulled a man over for speeding, and all kinds of, we don't know exactly all what happened, whether there was some resist or not, but they proceeded to beat him into submission, but then they went way beyond that, what was even ethical, legal, moral, name, putting a label on it. It was horrific. What was bizarre about this is all five officers had body cams on. They knew that everything they were doing was being watched, and they did it anyway. And Tyree died at 29 years old. He died. And so all five of them have been charged with lesser and more crimes. And you think, how? How could you do that knowing everything you're doing is being watched? It is. Not a body cam. But the divine eye of of God sees everything. And you know what we do? We do it anyway. We are no different than them. We sin knowing God's watching what we're doing. We go to websites we should not be going to. We say things to people at work we should not say behind their back, in front of them. We do all kinds of sins all the time knowing that there's more than a body cam watching. But yet Christ loves you anyway. He asks for us to repent. It says, for, for our sake, God the Father made Jesus' the Son to be sin. Who knew no sin. He, the sin wasn't his own. He became full of our sin. Think about that. It's estimated that 36 billion people have lived since Adam till now. The sins of 36 billion people being heaped upon the shoulders of one who had done nothing wrong, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. That, That is the gospel. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart right here, for with your heart, you believe and you're justified. You believe in the death burn, and resurrection of Christ for your sins, and once you confess that, you are saved. Let me ask you, do you know Christ that way? I would like for everybody to pray with me if you would. If you know Christ, this is an awesome time to thank Him for loving you, for putting the death, of the righteous with the wicked. And also to ask God to open the eyes of the blind. For those who don't know Christ, pray for them right here right now. There may be one here this morning or several. There may be people watching online who don't know Christ. Pray that God opens their hearts. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this not just story a legend, a myth, or fable. It's history. But Lord, it's your divine sovereign history. You have shown that you've woven history to go the way that you want it to. And even though we Appear to have free will. You're in control of every detail. And so we see, this, we see the gospel in this story, and we, we're thankful for it. Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, I pray today that would be the day that they'd make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life and the Savior of their soul, that they would believe in the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as their only hope of being spared from judgment. We give you glory tonight, Jesus. We're thankful for your word in, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, we are going to do a, a quick question-answer session time right now. You can text in your questions, if you haven't already, to this number right here. Uh, Amanda, would you like to help me with that? All right, cool. <clears throat> so there's the number on the screen. Uh, if you don't have reception, I know last week some, several people said, I was trying to text in a question, but there was no reception in this building. So um, you can hook to the Wi-Fi and do Wi-Fi calling if you like, or you can just simply raise your hand if you want to ask the question that way. So here's one question right here. about the angel's ability to bless us or is it more about the possibility that the angel is there to judge us is it similar to Matthew twenty five thirty five when Jesus says for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me that's a great question um and my first initial reaction is that would be both because the angels did come with Jesus even though Abraham was fully aware but they came to bless and I think that angels are ministers of God. And what's the ministry? The ministry is a blessing. So I think angels, even without us knowing it, can be blessing us in different ways. Um, But I think it's also an accountability thing. It's like they can report back to the throne and say, yeah, I talked to that Christian, I asked them for some help, and they just looked the other way and kept on walking. And I think uh, one day we'll be accountable for that. So I think there is both blessing and accountability. Um, Are there other questions yet? Did God die for Satan? Did God did God die for Satan? Sorry. The easy answer is no. Jesus Christ only died for humans. He didn't die for your dog. Sorry. He definitely didn't die for your cat. Um, he did not die for angelic beings. That's why the Bible says that angels look into the gospel with stunning amazement. They're like, we fell. One third of us fell, and He did nothing for us. He solidified their decision and said, you're going to hell for all eternity. Boom. And some of them are there right now because of the whole mixing with the women, of, uh, uh, the daughters of men. And then two-thirds of them are still active today, which will, they'll be in the pit later. But no chance of redemption whatsoever. But a human being is like, okay, I'll give you another chance. I'll send my son. That's why angels like, what? You know, so yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing thing that what the gospel is. What do you say to those individuals who say God destroyed Sodom for the lock, lack of hospitality? Yeah, it does say that later in, is it Isaiah or Jeremiah, it talks about the sin of Sodom being the lack of hospitality. Um, <clears throat> and that's just a nice way of saying, here's how they treated visitors, okay? But yes, they, 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 they were selfish and greedy and all that stuff, but there's the people in the homosexual crowd who try to use that passage to say, oh, it wasn't their sin, it wasn't that they were homosexual activity, just next week... Let's go through the story, and you'll be like, how do you come out any other way of understanding this was, not, this was sexual deviation from God's plan in the most wicked way? So, yeah. Um, okay, great. Let's stand. Oh, Patrick. Go ahead. Yes. In fact, Second Peter talks about, you know, don't be like Lot's wife. And I think the context is in the second coming because he brings the righteous out. And I do think that is a picture of the rapture. Okay? So, yeah, that's a great question. And he, and he judges what's behind. So, again, the timetable um, is extrapolated over from the second coming to the great white throne and before and after the millennial kingdom, but still the same principle there. That's an excellent question. Any other questions? All right, let's stand. And Pastor Stan, would you come up here for me, brother? We're continuing to pray for Ms. Riva. And... Uh, Tell, give us an update on Miss Reva and her her surgery and all the things going on right there, and then pray for us. Yeah, March March the 1st, she's scheduled for open-heart surgery, and uh, we believe God is going to be perfect all the way through, and uh, thanking Him in advance for it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You today for all that You've do- done for us and that uh, that You are doing within us. God, we ask you for your blessing today on each one. Thank you for your word, and I ask you that as we go our separate way today, that we'll continue to feast on what you have shared with us in our hearts today by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.